0: Hi, my name is A.D. Silverstein, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the Impresario Rock and Roll Radio Show. This episode will feature Hannah Miller and Oliver Austin, and you are listening to Behemoth by their band, The Moulettes.
1: A curious
2: mind working through.
0: you know, I'm a big fan of the Dutch band Draboa. So a year or two ago, I went online to check Draboa's schedule to see if they were planning to play in the United States. They weren't. But I saw that in their next show, they were opening for a band called the Mulets. I figured that if a band as good as Draboa was opening for the Mulettes the Mulettes were probably pretty good. So I looked them up on YouTube. The first video that came up was a live studio recording of a song called Behemoth. And as soon as I started listening, I was mesmerized by their unique big sound. The band had a bassoon, an electric cello, an electric guitar, a bass, drums, and three amazing female vocalists. They were awesome. And while I was thrilled to find them, I unfortunately spent the rest of the night lamenting that this amazing concert was about to take place over 3,000 miles away from me.
1: Impossible.
0: Over the years, the Moulettes have been through many iterations, but the lineup currently consists of Hannah Miller on electric cello, guitar, auto-harp, and lead vocals, Ray Vennon-Husbandis on electric guitar and lead vocals, Oliver Austin on drums, guitar, and vocals, and Jim Mortimer on bass, moog, and vocals. All right, so Hannah, how did the band originally meet?
1: We met at school when we were 15, 16, I think. So the original group... Uh, was Rob Skipper, who also went on to be in a band called The Holloways and a band called The Hares, or Hairs, sorry, I should say. Um, also Ruth Skipper. And sort of shortly after that three-piece, there was also Ted Duane, who uh, went on to be in a band you may have heard of called Mumford & Sons. So that was the kind of original five-piece. Um, And we were watching Spinal Tap all the time, you know, listening a lot to P.G. Harvey and Frank Zappa. And we had our first gig um, at Glastonbury Festival, uh, which was quite an auspicious beginning. And um, Ollie joined kind of soon after. And that's when we took the name Moulettes.
2: Yeah, Rob invited me to, to meet Hannah. And we actually hung out at the local studio called Valley Studios at the time, which was, you know, a small recording studio where a chap called Ben Startup, who is a dear friend of ours to this day, he would allow 16, 17-year-olds to come and hang out and and record music and listen to music together on, on nice speakers. You know, that's how we spent our
1: time. But there has been a lot of personnel in and out the door since then, and I think everybody brought something special. Um, but I guess the only constant has been Oli and myself.
0: So how do you guys write music? Do you have a fixed process or does it vary from song to song?
1: I think it has varied from, from song to song, definitely. But the the main I'm the main songwriter. And usually the process will be that I'll come with a collection of ideas, like a mood or or sometimes it's a bit more of a fleshed-out arrangement, but I'll, I'll bring it to Ollie and then we'll work on it.
2: We've always said as well, um, and we're not the only musicians that say it, you know, often the, the, the process of, of writing and releasing is the wrong way around. Um, you need to have the record finished before you book the tour. But actually, when you tour the new material um, over a period of time, it actually evolves and develops. Um having you know performed it night after night and, and different things open up, and it's actually at that point when you've actually toured things for quite a while that you feel like you've really settled on what the song actually is. Um, but it's interesting that the industry doesn't allow really for that to happen um, which is uh, you know it's one of those paradoxes in the music industry, I think.
1: yeah, it's the wrong way around But a beautiful song. That So sweet and so funny is she That the flowers turn to greet her And if I were to meet you tomorrow For the very first time Would you be a true lover?
0: So Preternatural was the first album that I heard by you guys. But when I went back to listen to some of your older stuff, I realized that the heavier electric rock sound that's on display in Preternatural is a bit of a departure from a more folky acoustic sound. What led to that transition in your music? What had happened in the music industry
2: across the UK and transatlantic pop music is that folk had sort of um, unexpectedly sort of gone into a bit more of the mainstream of what we were used to. I suppose in the States you have um, country is big, but I suppose that kind of the folk that we're talking about is um, I suppose more of that folk revival, folk rock, and then also some European folk influences as well. Um, that sort of for, for an unexpected turn, it sort of it, it became sort of a thing that that people outside of the folk world started to be, become interested into, and that conversation had gone on for about ten years in the UK scene at least, and I think we definitely felt that um, we didn't want to be uh, stuck in that conversation, and we also just wanted to demonstrate that, um, you know as artists it's uh, it's really important to um keep reminding people that it's part of our job to to keep on changing and if people are expecting to come to a folk gig then then that's not who we are as artists and i think we that that point we just wanted to reiterate with preternatural so in the terms of like sonically i think we we have that in the back of our minds as well
0: Would you guys describe Preternatural as a concept album? And if so, what's the theme that ties the album together?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, each song takes as its starting point um, a specific creature. So it, it's a conceptual album about the natural world. And each song is about a different creature. So Behemoth is kind of an oddity because it's the only one that's not... It's a kind of mysterious... It's a mystery creature, that one. for the
2: creatures that have yet to be discovered.
1: That's about the, yeah. For example, track two, Underwater Painter, is about cephalopods in general, uh, uh, octopus in particular, and their amazing abilities as chameleons of the sea. And um, coral is about the destruction of the coral reefs. Um, I mean, it does, the overarching narrative, I hope, is one of urgency that we try and halt our uh, shameful destruction of the natural world and and as a species just try and hold ourselves accountable for what is a huge uh, disaster <laughs> that we've created by our existence. So, I mean, that doesn't make it sound as fun as 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 maybe.
2: Well, we just try we just tried to find that you know talking about the environment. A lot has been said that needs to be said. I think it feels like, as artists, we need to find creative and new ways to talk about the in- environment and the natural world in a in a fun and joyous and creative way, but without trying to sound too preachy. And I think creatures is a really good starting point because, um, I mean, the UK are particularly, um, we're big animal lovers as a culture. But I think ca- you can find a lot of common ground with people because a lot of people just love looking at weird and wonderful creatures and um, if it's trying to find that common ground where you can communicate something a bit bigger um, about um, what's on our minds as artists and I think that that's kind of one of the starting points of where that record started.
1: Yeah it wasn't all doom and gloom There's definitely just it was a real love song to the to the natural world.
2: Also the theme we're talking about is is truth as you know there's all this sort of chat about post-truth world and all this stuff and I think that's quite an it's quite an inspiring place to start as an artist because we see that the one of the jobs of of artists is to challenge people to think differently about things Um, but that's not to say that you have to throw out everything that's been learned before Um, and it's also not to say that you um, (laughs) you can just make up your own truth and that's fine without any accountability which seems to be what seems to be more fashionable now than ever.
0: So one of my favourite songs on Preternatural is Behemoth. What's that song about, and how does it fit into the overall concept of the album?
1: Behemoth as a song just came along and presented itself. You know, it demanded a certain style of execution. Execution not really being the right word for a record. That's about preserving the longevity of nature. But, you know, um, Behemoth is not an acoustic song, really. It It does work acoustically in a way, but it kind of set the tone, I think, for just a bit more... Of a bombastic,
2: and that was one of the first songs that came out. That was, uh, yeah, yeah. It,
1: that really did emerge, kind of almost, in its. It had definitely had a character, you know, when it was born. It came from a kind of internet conspiracy about um, a sound that they recorded in the Pacific. Um, the bloop. Which, which is named the bloop, if you want to kind of go down a bit of an internet wormhole, and from the. Kind of volume of the sound and the type of the sound, it just sort of sparked this hysteria where people were suggesting that it must be this enormous mammal. As a species, I think we can be quite arrogant, and I think that it's just important to be aware that there's this whole dimension of the natural world that we perhaps don't really understand, or there's things that we haven't anticipated.
2: In fact, that's what preternatural means. Um, it's quite an interesting word. It's the space between the known and the unknowable.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: So perhaps there are things that are unknowable. I would imagine there are, particularly in our lifetimes with everyone working together. There's only so much we can achieve together. And I suppose that's also why we thought we needed to obviously do something interesting with the sound of what we were doing as a band. We wanted that first track to have a big impact. Um, We wanted the people listening to it go, wow, okay, these guys are... um, doing something different this time immediately and that's the point that we wanted to get across so we wanted to create us this sort of sense of the listener not knowing you know where where the album was going to go
0: So another one of my favorite songs on the record is Underwater Painter, and you mentioned that it's about octopuses. What about them inspired you when you were writing that song?
1: I get really excited about octopuses because um, there's a lot of things that are only gradually becoming understood about the way that they operate. They're very complex. They've got very complex DNA. They are seemingly colorblind, but they are incredibly light sensitive, and they have this ability to... To very very rapidly change colour and and texture and conceal themselves entirely, or do hypnotic dances, depending on you know how they <laughs> how they want to catch their. Grabs. It's all
2: very inspirational stuff. Underwater Painter has one of my favourite bits on the record, where Ray and Hannah do this sort of dual uh, cello guitar uh, wig out, which is great.
1: Meow 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 a bit
2: yeah. Um, yeah, I know the one. It's great. You know when when players are playing off each other and um, even sometimes playing the same same lines together. It's um, it creates quite a strange sonic tension. Um, you can get some quite new sounds that you wouldn't expect if if um, yeah same instruments are playing the same lines.
1: Blends, Unison
2: interesting blends. blends.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know Frank Zappa used to do that a lot. And,
2: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Zappa is, is in our pantheon of, of saints.
0: Here we so what's it like surviving as an experimental band in England in today's music industry?
2: Well, because very little money gets made in selling records, the shift has gone to being a, a live act the whole time. So um, that's the biggest difference that's happened, is that we, to make the business work, the boring side of stuff work, it feels like we have to be on the road uh, a lot of the time. And although that's fun, a lot, and playing live is great, it also comes with big challenges uh, in terms of being tired, exhausted, um, suffering from overexposure of people and noise. You know, there's a lot of uh, stuff that's coming to the forefront of awareness of, you know, mental health stuff that happens when musicians are having to be on the road the whole time. So that's one of the biggest challenges is to uh, make sure you know how to burn not burn out when you're on the road, um, but also the challenge of trying to find other revenue streams that can support and, um, you know, uh, support you as a writer. So, you know, Hannah mentioned the theatre dance group piece, stuff, stuff like that. Just continually trying to find new opportunities to, to write and try and find where people can actually pay musicians for the work uh, that we do. Um, so that's a continual challenge. Um, to get right and to get the balance right.
0: So what would you say are the main problems facing the music industry right now?
2: I think the, the investment in, in smaller acts has um, stopped. People are willing to spend big amounts of money to see a, a big production live, but it's usually with on an act that's um, had extreme amount of PR money put into them to get that initial exposure. The challenge, I think, is making sure that some of the companies that are involved in those bigger acts are investing in the middle to smaller acts and developing them. Um, and because there's been not as much money around, they've been more reluctant to to invest and take those risks. Um,
1: and there is a disconnect as well between acts that people are very nostalgic about, such as Kate Bush or, like, a contemporary's... Um, who had a lot of freedom to spend time in the studio, um, there's a disconnect between seeing the value of those those acts and the kind of, as we were describing it, cultural deficit now of, of, of ideas so that you're still seeing the Rolling Stones on the covers of magazines. <laughs> it's just like... Bizarre. It's not how it should be. You know, and right. amongst our contemporaries, I could think of many people who I think are doing very exciting things, doing very um, original um, unique things that they're bringing themselves to, but they're unfortunately hampered by.
2: There's only about 6,000 people that know of
1: what they're doing. Yeah.
0: So going off of that, when I found you guys through Jerboa, I was both ecstatic and a little depressed because on the one hand, I think you guys are amazing. But on the other hand, I knew that had I never met Beck at the Amsterdam Conservatory, I probably never would have found your music or Jerboa's for that matter since the algorithms that promote music on apps like YouTube and Spotify don't recommend music based on quality but rather more superficial quantifiable factors.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's actually really interesting to look up what those factors are. Do yeah. You? And yeah. it's things like things that have been very successful for example. It's looking for things that are a similar BPM, a similar, you know, a, um, the same key. The same feel and the same energy level yeah you're exactly right that it doesn't look for talent or craft Well,
2: and, and marketing marketing is is, is putting uh, is telling people where to go as well which is yeah. which is really strange um, it has its perks but if you're starting from a simple place you're going to be listening to simple music for for years to come because the algorithms are telling you to do that and the playlist that you you know, and I think that that's quite an interesting time that we're living in.
1: Self-fulfilling playlists. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's
2: so interesting talking to, you have to have those kind of meetings with people in the industry about the way that the market's going and where, it's, you know, how these things are working. So yeah, yep. there, there isn't necessarily a right answer of where things can go, but I just think it's really important for people to be challenged, uh, in a safe creative space, I think that that's important. So as long I, as that's happening in the mainstream, I see it good.
1: as new. Nu- like a, I see it in terms of nutrition, and I think you know certain very saccharine uh, mainstream pop music that's that's sort of not saying anything new and just a bit bland. That's the uh, the musical equivalent of eating angel delight every day, and. That's not going to do you any good.
2: But people can survive on bland food.
1: I don't think they could survive on Angel Delight. Probably
2: they? not Angel Delight, but they can survive on bland food if needs be. But I think what we're talking about is perhaps more serious. It's like the...
1: Cultural yeah. deficit. That's
2: Yeah, cultural deficit. And that, that's, that's... There is that slight... It all sounds a bit serious, but I genuinely... That's what drives me to be an artist, is I genuinely think that I have a role to play... In that, in that, um, in that very sphere of trying to challenge and push people's ideas and get them to think about new things,
1: whilst they dance,
2: whilst dancing.
1: What is done is done, done it.
0: There's an old cliche that art can't be defined, and to me, what that cliche means is that the boundaries of our own artistic tastes are undefined. For instance, I may hear a song tomorrow that is unlike anything I've ever heard before, and it may redefine my entire perception of good music. I mean, can you imagine how Mozart would have reacted to hearing Charlie Parker or Jimi Hendrix? The problem with using algorithms and computers as a means to discover great art is that great art is not formulaic. We don't know why it's great or why we love it, and we therefore can't tell a computer what to look for. As Claude Debussy once said, works of art make rules rules do not make works of art i personally believe that great art by its very nature is preternatural Next time on the Impresario Rock and Roll Radio Show. I don't know, at some point something just clicked. I had brought an acoustic guitar with me, and I just found myself so much more attracted to practicing that in my dorm room. Right, like, the guitar was just like, I could just pick it up start playing. And it was also, emotionally I was going through some stuff, and that was when I started writing as like a catharsis. Tune in for an exclusive interview with the American singer-songwriter, Ethan Lipkind. Hey friends, thanks for tuning into The Moulettes. If you liked what you heard, please download the podcast and write us a review. And if you're feeling extra affectionate, follow us on Instagram at impresario underscore official. Also, I'm always looking for new bands to interview, so if you know of any shoot me an email at Impresario at gmail.com.